So this morning we're going to look at uh, an episode that happens actually about eight days after the birth of Jesus. So we're kind of, we're, we're skipping ahead a little bit. But don't worry, we'll get to the birth narrative that will actually happen on Christmas Eve. So I encourage you to invite your friends out to that. We will talk about that. But today we're going to talk about an encounter that they have with an obscure couple about eight days after Jesus' birth. All right, so uh, Luke chapter 2. We're going to begin uh, in verse 22. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. All right. So at this point, we see Mary and Joseph doing what they were supposed to do by the law. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've talked about how Mary and Joseph were both very kind of upright people who were very concerned with keeping the law, the Torah, the Old Testament law of God, that, that, was, a very, that was primary concern for them. And so here again, we see them in the temple eight days after Jesus is born uh, to perform the sacrifice for purification. That was kind of an Old Testament requirement that whenever a woman had a baby, they were to wait eight days until the baby was born and then to go to the temple and present a sacrifice. Four different times in six verses, you, we read the word law. This idea that the law is a central part of what they're working through in this text, of what they're adhering to. It was a, a key part of their lives. So they're, they're living out the law, right? They're coming to, to present the sacrifice. But we learn something pretty specific about them in what they're sacrificing. They're sacrificing two pigeons. There was kind of a, a in the law, there was an exception, the ideal for women when they were to do this sacrifice, a purification, was to present a lamb, to bring a lamb and sacrifice it. But the law said if, if, you didn't ha- if you couldn't afford a lamb, if you didn't have enough money, you could bring pigeons instead. So one of the things we learn about Mary and Joseph in this passage is that they were poor. A- at this point, responding to God's call had not necessarily resulted in some kind of windfall of prosperity for them. They were still poor so much so that they had to settle for the less-than-ideal sacrifice, the two pigeons. And then we meet these two characters, right? We, we run into Simeon, 
who's this interesting fellow who's kind of been in the temple for years, decades, and he's, we're told he's righteous and devout as well. Like this is an upright, very kind of religious, righteous person who's been waiting for the Savior to come, waiting for the Messiah, anticipating it. Now, we kind of get the sense that he's old. Luke doesn't tell us what age he is, but we know that he's kind of waiting for this before he dies. We, we hear that the Spirit has told him he, he would not die until he's seen the Messiah, the Savior. And so there's this expectation that he's old. So when, when Joseph and Mary come, he, he comes up to them, somehow finds them in the midst of the 35-acre temple complex, which in and of itself is a little bit of a miracle, right? So he finds the family, and he takes the child. And I don't know if that's like a normal thing in first century Palestine. If I'm like walking around with my newborn baby, and some old guy walks up to me and like goes to grab it, just handing the child over is not typically how I would respond. But this is what happens. So he, he walks up, he takes the child from them, and he sings a song, right? He, he worships he sings a particular song, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. And in this blessing, in this song, we learn something about Jesus and what he's doing. I mean, up until this point, the expectation, now we, we get hints of this when the angels show up and they talk to Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. We get hints of it. We see it clearly here. This child, this Savior, is not just for the people of Israel. I mean, even as Simeon was waiting, it says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. This expectation that the Messiah, the Savior, was coming to save the nation of Israel for them. But when he sings this spirit-inspired song, what becomes clear really quickly is that this is actually a Savior who has come for everyone. The Gentiles, the non-Jews, the nations, that all people will be impacted by what God is doing through this child. And then finally, there's Anna. Again, Anna is, we get more information about her than we get about Simeon, but she doesn't say a word. She's a little bit like Joseph, right? She plays this key role, but we don't really hear her speak at all. But what we know about her is that she is quite old. Um, She was widowed after seven years of marriage and then has spent her time constantly in the temple, worshiping since then. Now, we don't know, um, in the, the um, particular translation that I read, it said she was 84 years old. Uh, scholars were, are kind of not sure when Luke writes in the original language 84 years, if that she's 84 years old, or if that's it's been 84 years since she was widowed. They're not sure. So she's somewhere between like 84 and 104, somewhere in that range. So one way or another, she's older right? I mean, she's kind of, she's been waiting for a long time. But one of the things that we see in this kind of brief scene that I think is important to pay attention to is that these are all people who at this point in time have made considerable sacrifices to be in this place and time in the story, right? Like Anna, it would have been completely appropriate and right and good for her after being widowed to get remarried. I mean, that's the way she could have gotten back to life as normal. That would have been completely appropriate. But she chose not to. Simeon, I I don't know what decisions he made to put him in the place to be in the temple constantly waiting for the Messiah, but I'm sure there were many. 
costly decisions. And then, of course, Joseph and Mary, we've talked about them. If, if you've been with us the, um, three and four weeks ago, this idea of all that they set aside, all that they sacrificed in order to say yes to God's call. All four of these people are here at this moment in the story and have, they've suffered at some level. They've, it's cost them something to be here. And then we hear something in Simeon's blessing that kind of draws our attention to this reality, this, this cost. You know, he sings this song, and then it says he turns and he blesses Mary and Joseph. But the last thing he says doesn't sound like much of a blessing. Again, he says to Mary specifically, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. That's a little bit of a downer, right? Like, I mean, up until this point, this is kind of this exciting thing, right? Here are these people who have been awaiting the Messiah to come, the Savior of the world to come, and here he is, and this old guy swoops him up and sings a song to him, and it's about the the revelation of God's work in, in the nations to all people. And a sword will pierce your own soul. Not exactly what I would be expecting if I were Mary. But this is the message that she gets. This is the last thing that she hears in this interaction. She gets the word that part of what, part of the package of being the mother of the Savior is going to be suffering being a part of what God is doing will lead you down a road of suffering. And I think we see that in each of these characters' lives. The choice to say yes to being a part of the thing that God was doing was a choice to embrace some level of suffering, some level of pain and difficulty that they wouldn't have otherwise experienced. Now, we don't tend to think about that, or at least I don't uh, tend to think about that a lot when we think about what it means to follow God. We tend to think in our lives much more about how do we remove suffering from our lives, right? How do we create lives that are as free from suffering as possible? How do I create a space that's as comfortable as possible, that's as efficient, as kind of, you know, the way I would like it as possible? That's kind of our goal right? And in that paradigm, God functions as the one who makes that all happen. We come to God to request that our plans go the way that we had planned them to go. That's kind of God's role in that. But this isn't what we see in the lives of, the lives of Mary and Joseph and in those around them. We see actually quite the opposite. We see people who have, I'm sure, because they're humans, they have their plans and their dreams and their expectations. But they set them aside for the thing that God is doing. They defer what they want so they can be a part of what God wants and what God is doing in them and in the world. And this is 
as we begin with Jesus, this only continues. As we look at Jesus in his life and ministry, this becomes a core part of what it means to be a follower of this Messiah. This idea of suffering. In all of the Gospels and all of the biographies of Jesus that we find in the New Testament, we see kind of similar calls from Jesus, but we'll look at particularly in Matthew. There's a moment when Jesus says to his disciples, he kind of defines what it's going to mean to be a part of what he's doing. He says this, Whoever wants to be my disciple, my student, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life, for me, will find it. Jesus makes it clear for the people who are looking to follow him that if you're going to get on board, if you're going to go in this direction, you need to know that that way is a way that leads, that kind of goes through suffering, through death even. That when Jesus models the love of God, the way he models it is quite literally through death, laying his life down so that you and I and the world could be transformed, reconciled is the word that scripture used to God, brought back into life with our creator and with others. And the way we do that is by a sort of death, denying ourselves. This idea of, because for most of us, I mean, this is kind of normal for people, we are the center of our own universes, right? Like most of what we think, most of how we function is with us at the center. Our, our desires, our plans, our purposes, our wants, our needs. But the death that Jesus calls to, the path of Jesus, is this path of kind of replacing ourselves as the center of our story and allowing ourselves to get caught up in God's story, in what God's doing. Allowing God and his work to be the center. And that is suffering. Choosing to deny ourselves, to set aside the thing that we want for the sake of what God is doing, being a part of what God is doing in us and in the world, is suffering. It's a way of taking on this other-centered, this God-centered reality and laying aside the us-centered one. I asked uh, Pete and Marianne Schaefer if I could share a story this morning. Uh, If you've been around a while, you may know Pete and Marianne. They'll actually be up here in just a few minutes. We're going to have a baptism and they're going to stand up here as deacons. Uh, deacons are a team of people here who kind of offer pastoral care. When people are going through a difficult time, they reach out to them. Um, they connect with, with new individuals. Um, they, they try and walk with people through difficult times. They're a great group of people. Pete and Marianne serve on that team. And uh, you can see them here. Uh, Pete is the one who so thoughtfully is trying to adjust uh, Kurt's nose for the picture um, reaching across there in the background. This is years ago when they served with our uh, Avenue 46 ministry. Uh, So you see Pete in front of him is his wife, Marianne. And a number of years ago, well, Pete is a coach. He's coached cross-country for years. And a number of years ago, there was an individual, uh, a young man on one of his cross-country teams named Joe. 
Uh, now, Joe was a part of, uh, he, he lived at Bethany Children's Home, which is a home for at-risk youth. And uh, Joe was an exceptional talent. He was a great runner, and uh, Pete noticed that right away. But he also, you know, as, as he was coaching him, uh, re- recognized that, yeah, there were some, there, there were some, there was a backstory to that. There was something outside of running that was going on for Joe. And as, as Pete got to know Joe, uh, Joe actually initiated with him and said, hey, would, would it be okay, kind of through a friend, would it be okay if, you know, we could spend more time together? And Pete and, and his wife Marianne and their daughters, they talked about it. Um, they prayed about it. They're like, yeah, you know, I think this would be good. Why don't you, you know, start coming up here every other weekend, spend some time with our house, with our family. This would be great. And so they did. They opened their home to him and, and invited him to come and began to just kind of welcome him into their family. After a while of doing this, it just seemed like this was, this was going really well. Uh, it was a very positive experience for, for the Schaefers and for Joe. And eventually, they started having conversation about whether or not the Schaefers could take him in permanently. And again, they, they kind of they prayed, they talked, uh, all as a family together, like, do, what do we think, what, what do we feel like uh, God is inviting us to do here? And, and they decided together, oh, we think we ought to do this. We think this is, this is a great opportunity to provide care for this kid. And so they did. They took him into to their home. And they moved in, and for the first couple of months, everything seemed to be great. You know, they, they were careful to make sure that the same rules that applied to their daughters applied to Joe, uh, that he felt like part of the family, but as such, he also had the same responsibilities as everyone else in the family. Well, because of that, uh, they soon began to get some pushback from Joe. Like, they would, they would require certain things. Hey, Joe, you know, you, you got to make sure you do X, Y, and Z. And, and he wouldn't like that, didn't want to do that. And his response began to be things like he would run away. And so they'd kind of lay the law down, here's the thing you've got to do, and the next thing they know, Joe would take off. And this became a pattern. And so they began to kind of try and figure things out. They, they saw some, uh, some social workers to kind of work through some of these things and figure out how do we take appropriate steps. But the deeper they got into this, the more they realized, wow, there are things we didn't realize were going on. Ways that Joe was being manipulative and, and things that were happening at school that they weren't aware of. And so the story began to unfold like, wow, this is a lot more complex than we understood. But they were still committed. They were still wanting to do what was right to, to care for Joe, to provide a good life for him. And then at one point, because Joe excelled at running, he had an opportunity to run in, in a, a national competition. But it was in North Carolina, and it was going to be expensive. And, and Pete and Marianne, their, their other kids had had opportunities to do similar things. And when they did that, they always said, hey, we will support you. We want you to be a part of this, but you've got to pay for some of it. You know, part of the, the earnings from your job should go towards you going on this trip. Well, so they did the same thing with Joe. They said, hey, you know, as part of this, we really want to support you. We want you to have this opportunity. In fact, um, Pete had worked hard to get him accepted at a Division I school for running. Uh, he, he had... He had, it was all planned out. He was accepted at Indiana University, and Joe was going to go uh, and, and run for them. I mean, they were very supportive, very excited about Joe's running career. So they said, hey, we want you to go to this thing. This is a great opportunity for you, um, but you're going to need to help with some of the costs, okay? Everyone else did it. Uh, you're going to need to get a job, mow some lawns, do something. You know, it doesn't have to be a lot, but you have to contribute something towards it. He refused. And in fact, he was so, he was so incensed 
that they would expect this of him, that they would ask this of him, that he became furious. And Pete and Marianne shared that it kind of culminated in one evening, Pete coming home and finding him physically shoving Marianne and and one of the daughters. So Pete had to kind of physically restrain him. And even at that point, trying to talk him out of this, not, not throwing him out of the house, but trying to talk him out of like, hey, look, there's a better way. This is not what we want for you. But he refused. And he, he walked out. He packed his things and he left. Forever. And when I talked to Pete and Marianne about this experience, it is really clear that this was painful. In fact, when I told them, I wanted to talk to them about uh, this story for this sermon. I said, I, the theme of the, the sermon is, is following God into suffering. And they were like, oh, there was lots of suffering. It's really clear that this was a difficult experience for them. And so I asked them, I said, so knowing what you now know, would you do it again? Unequivocally, yes. Okay, so why? Because that did not sound fun. And the answer was simple. He needed help. Of course we would help him. Why wouldn't we? Yes, we would do it again. Yes, it was painful. I'm sure they would say, if you asked them, they learned some things they'd probably do differently. But they would absolutely welcome him into their lives again. Because that's what you do. You help people. And I was thinking about this last night. I actually had the opportunity to perform a a very small wedding ceremony last night. And so I was thinking about um, this passage that I often read in wedding ceremonies. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if you're familiar, it's in the New Testament. It's a passage that you might often see put on people's uh, walls about love. And again, the version of Scripture, you know, there are a variety of versions of Scripture. The one that I tend to read, the NIV, would say things like love is patient, love is kind, etc., etc. I didn't have my NIV Bible last night, so I I grabbed a a version called the New King James, which is a bit more archaic language, a bit more poetic. And I opened up, and I, I started reading in preparation. And the way it described patience kind of grabbed me. It said, love suffers long. Love suffers long. And I was struck by this idea. Because whenever I talk to couples who are going to get married, I talk about this concept that that love is a choice, that love's not a feeling, it's not something that you experience um, that might go away sometime when suddenly the other person is less attractive than they currently are, or you're in the middle of a fight, but that love is a choice that you make to put another's needs above your own, that that's what love is. And that's true. And if that's true, then of course that necessitates that love involves suffering. Anytime we choose to put another's needs above our own, it's a choice to suffer. Anytime we look to engage another person in relationship, the invitation for love is an invitation 
to be vulnerable, right? To, if you're going to have any kind of real relationship with someone, you've got to risk opening up and letting them in. You've got to invest emotionally at some level if you're going to have any kind of meaningful relationship, any kind of meaningful friendship. There has to be some sense in which you take a risk. Love at any level requires suffering. A willingness to set aside ultimately what you want, your, your needs, for the sake of someone else. That's true in any human relationship And frankly, it's true with God. One of the things that became clear as I spoke with Pete and Marianne, uh, I was struck, I I was talking to them about the choice and, you know, how to discern, like, how to decide what choice is God kind of inviting me to take. And Marianne said something that I just thought, it just struck me as, wow, that's that's a really great way to look at that. She said, uh, she talked about the idea, you might use these uh, images of doors, right? When God invites you to, to follow him, that there's this door and that door, and which one do you take? And Mary Ann said, she's like, well, does it matter? Because on the other side, God is with you. And I was like, what a great way to think about that, right? That the point of it is not, did I get this right? The point is, God is with me. And I think this is what we see in the call to embrace suffering as we follow Christ. It's it's not a call to just kind of, it's it's not like a masochistic kind of thing where we just kind of have to like suffer because there's something about suffering that's inherently valuable. But it's the experience that we have when we put someone other than ourselves at the center of our lives we experience suffering and that we have to lay aside what we want primarily for the sake of the other. But the gift that we get in return is them. And when following after God involves suffering, the gift is God's presence in the midst of that suffering. And there are lots of kind of other ways that suffering can be formative and helpful But I think the primary understanding of suffering for us is that even in that suffering, God is with us. God is in us and shaping us. And so it's worth it. So a couple of kind of thoughts on this. I mean, I know this is not really, you know, as a Christmas reflection, this is not a really kind of motivating, like, hey, Merry Christmas, God. But I do think this is, a, this is a core part of what it means to take this story seriously, is to recognize the, how central it is, this idea of self-denial and suffering to the story of Jesus. So a couple of thoughts, if you experience suffering, and maybe with the caveat, for the sake of Christ. And what I mean by that is, if you are someone who is looking, even if this is new for you, and you're like, I'm, tr- I'm trying to learn from Jesus. I'm, I'm kind of trying to follow in this way. And as you're doing that, you're experiencing suffering at some level. You know, that's kind of different than experiencing. There's lots of reasons why you could experience suffering, right? You could experience suffering because you're just a jerk. And so people get frustrated with it. Like, that's not really the same thing. So these don't quite apply in the same way. Um, you know, or you could experience suffering for, you know, a variety of other reasons. We'll talk about some of those in a second. But um, the first of all, if you are, 
trying to live out the way of Jesus, if you're trying to explore faith in Christ, whether you're kind of new at this or you've been doing this for years, and you're experiencing suffering, the first thing I'd encourage you to do is to keep going. You've probably heard the quote, if you're going through hell, keep going, which I assumed was a quote by Winston Churchill, because that's what everybody says, but thanks to the internet, I realized that that's probably not true. No one really knows who said it, but it's still kind of helpful, and there's a country music song now based on it, so there's that. Um, But the idea of, if you are in the process of kind of trying to take on this, this way of Jesus, learn from Jesus, follow in the way of Jesus in your life, and you're experiencing some kind of suffering, keep going. Keep pressing through. Suffering is not evidence that you have necessarily taken the wrong way. Sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes the experience of suffering, of pushback, of challenges, is actually evidence that you're on the right path. And you just need to keep going, to keep pushing forward. But I would encourage you, as you're going, to ask for help, to invite people to come around you, to join you. Remember, the rebels had an alliance, right? It it wasn't, I mean, I know at the end, Luke was the only one left, and he shot, I know, but he didn't, he couldn't have gotten there were it not for all the people around him. Ask for help, but keep going. There's something that God is doing in you through this period of suffering. At the very base level, there's an opportunity for you to get to know God in new ways because God is present with you. And there might be even more. Keep going. And number two, I would just like to encourage you that it is, in fact, worth it. It's worth it. Now, you might be looking at this with suspicion, especially if you're new to this faith thing and going, see, this is what's wrong with religion. You get perfectly rational people who would otherwise make good decisions about avoiding suffering, but you convince them that God wants them to suffer, and so then they suffer. What is up with that? See, this is why religion is bad. And, and I get it. I mean, I, I hear you. Um, but I don't actually think it's true. Because, listen, people suffer for lots of really bad reasons, right? Like, I know lots of people who suffer because they feel like they have to have things that they can't afford, and so they incur large amounts of debt that brings suffering in their life. There are others who are so self-centered that they can't see the needs of people around them, or they are unwilling to risk anything in relationship, and so they become isolated, and they suffer. Others who just are too arrogant to ask for help, and so life is a lot harder than it needs to be. And so they suffer. There are lots of reasons why people suffer that have nothing to do with God at all. In fact, one way or another, your experience in life will lead you to suffering. I think the why is important. And I'd also say that many good things come from suffering. There's lots of great stuff that comes from going through a difficult time. I mean, a a very practical kind of image for this is some of you work out, right? Clearly, I don't, but I have been to gyms on occasion, and I've seen what this is like. Actually, a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine called. He's like, hey, I'm going to go work out. Can you come and spot me? It's like, is that a thing? Like, do people do that? Um, But so I did. I I was like, okay, fine. I'll, I'll come and spot you. 
Um, and so I, I came. And, you know, if you've been to gyms, you know what this is like, right? Like, there's all of these really big, bulky people around, and they're yelling a lot, and they're red-faced. I mean, it is not a pleasant experience. This is not a place that you go. And, I mean, if you came in, just kind of had no idea what was going on, you'd come out, you'd, like, leave quickly and be like, I don't know what's happening in there. And I never want to be there again. I mean, these people are not having fun. So why do they do it? Well, I mean, you know the answer, right? Like, if done well, exercise, working out, those things can lead to really positive results. But you can't do it unless you're willing to bear some kind of suffering. Hence, me, right? Like, I mean, that's why I'm not there. Because that level of suffering is not something that is attractive to me. Um, but there are others who do that, right? Like, my, my son runs, and we have this conversation. Like, why do you run? I would stop. And he's like, Dad, there's, there's something that just feels really good about hitting that point where you feel like you can't go any further and then pushing through and being like, I did that. I don't know that feeling. Many of you do. (laughs) But that's the point, right? I mean, if suffering is the thing you avoid for the sake of living a life free of suffering, you're going to miss out on a lot of really great things. And if we're going to live lives that are centered not on ourselves, but on the Creator, it's going to require that we displace ourselves, that we, that we deny ourselves at some level and experience suffering so that we can be a part of the beautiful story that He is making in the world. It's just like the option that Han had. He could have done the safe thing, the me-centered thing, and make sure all of his bases were covered. Or he could risk it all and join the alliance for a greater cause. And again, sorry, spoiler alert, he does, and we're all glad. Don't you want to live a life like that? I mean, don't you want a world full of people who are living their lives for the sake of others? That is not an easy road. The only way that is accomplished is by us following Jesus in the way of suffering, self-giving love that requires that we suffer for the sake of others. And in doing that, as we clear out ourselves, we make room for him to come in new ways in our lives. And that is ultimately what's required as we prepare for Christmas, right? This, this clearing out, this making way for God to show up in our lives, just as he showed up in the Christ child. But that doesn't happen if we're not willing to experience suffering at some level. I'm excited that this morning as we talk some about suffering, we actually get to experience two very meaningful Uh, kind of symbolic practices in in Christianity. One is baptism, the other is communion. And both of these are very much tied to this idea of suffering, this this idea of following Christ in the way of death and resurrection. So in baptism, now typically, you know, if we had the facilities, we we would like kind of dip the person underwater. There's this symbolic kind of death and resurrection. We don't. And it could be really difficult to try to submerge someone in this pool. And so we don't do that. So we pour. But the idea is this kind of identifying 
with the death and the resurrection of Christ, right? Because we go into suffering, trusting in the life that Christ brings, even in the midst of that. And so this practice is a way that we acknowledge someone's identification with following Christ into his death, into the suffering, and into the life that comes out of that. And then we're going to, um, to take communion together, where we celebrate, again, the, the death, the suffering of Christ, so that we can have life, where we take a little bread, uh, a little juice, to remember that together.